Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, thank you for coming. Terrific. Now, tonight we're going to talk about the glory days of the music papers, the time when bands desperately needed weekly publicity to sell records and were pretty much defined by the coverage they got. But this we are seeing from the unique perspective of one of the key press agents of the day who has written a terrific memoir about seeing his acts in unguarded moments and getting uh, to see what I think we could call the full range of their personalities. And this includes the Ramones, Talking Heads, the Undertones, the Bunny Men, and the Teardrop Explosion. This is the man who told the world that the KLF had apparently burnt a million pounds in cash on the island of Jura. They did? Okay, well, we shall come to that later. (laughs) We'll sort this out. Okay, please welcome the fantastic Mick Houghton. Thank you. We're going to ask a traditional question. Oh, I did on. try and write a musical once, by the way. You did? I did. Oh, right. Oh, good. We, well I, well, one song in a musical about Sherlock Holmes, and you can probably guess what it was called. Go on. It was called Elementary, My Dear Watson. <laughs> yeah. Oh, OK. And it was full of people going... Oh, that was your song. It was called Elementary, My Dear Watson. Never got any further. Well, that's very exciting. Yeah. So I became that's an a... interesting start. <laughs> yeah. Now, you have written this book, Fried and Justified, which we're going to come on to. But the first traditional question we always ask people is, what music do they remember playing uh, when they grew up? What was playing in your house? And what was it playing on, in fact? Okay, what well, device? Funnily enough, it was exactly the same as Anne talked about, a kind of radiogram, a uh, right. big, big yeah. radiogram, um, with a turntable, and in either side were... You know, uh, uh, racks, you know what they called. You know, basically, where all the records were, were right, uh, kept. Yeah, yeah. And it was all seventy-eights, terrible oh. records. Edmund Hockridge, Dickie Valentine. Yeah, yeah. Good, Whitfield, no, no shame in that. Mantovani. Um, but I, I just loved the records. It was just the, I just used to get the records out, play them, usually break them. Um, and I think even when I was about eight years old, I wanted to be a disc jockey. That's what I wanted to be, a disc jockey. Um, and like I said, the music was awful until 
I think until 45s came in, the first 45 we got was Michael Holliday's The Story of My the Life. The Story of My Life. Yeah, yeah. Which I kind of loved because it had a kind of narrative. And I remember trying to write the words out. Um, and then my dad came home one day with Rock Around the Clock. And that was... Dad came home with Rock yeah. Around the Clock. I mean, I don't know Slightly why. Slightly unusual. Very I, unusual. I don't know why, but he, it, it's like he probably won on the horses. And when, when he won on the horses, he, he bought steak, and we'd have steak, steak and chips. But for some reason, he, he had this copy, he bought a copy of Rock Around the Clock. I'm getting a picture of a very raffish light. I have, this is a fantastic... Fan out, not yet. A large radio... <laughs> when you have, when the dad with the vivid check suit. Oh, yeah, steak and the... chips means he's won on the horses. <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's wonderful. That's, um... But, but yeah. you, you, came, you were a journalist, first of all, when you were working on, um, you know, Let It Rock and Circus magazine. Yeah, sort of Let It so Rock, Circus. Doing what, what, just reviewing records and stuff? Reviewing albums? No, I, it's funny enough, I very rarely reviewed records. It was mostly writing features. It was mostly doing interviews, writing features. Um, I mean, the great thing about Circus, which, which I, was, I was the London correspondent for Circus, was it was a really big magazine in America. I mean, you couldn't really get it here. But... They wrote about all the stuff that I really hated. You know, it was it was very much prog led and hard rock led. So I was always doing interviews with like with Black Sabbath and Queen um, and, and Genesis. I was always interviewing Genesis, it seemed. So, but it just wasn't really what I wanted to write about. And and, and that was the kind of problem for me was that there was actually quite a lot of work if you're a freelance journalist. And I worked for Time Out as well. Did bits of sounds. But unless you worked for one of the four music papers, you couldn't really, you didn't really have a great opportunity to write about the things that you wanted to write about. Right. Which, at the time in particular, was, was all the kind of Bowery bands that were coming through. And, and just seeing the Ramones and Talking Heads and Richard Hell. But I, I just couldn't, but I, I couldn't, make... couldn't write about them anyway because yeah. that gig was taken by somebody else. You know. How did you make the transition into, into press? Was it, was it Andrew Lauder at Radar? Am I, am no, I, I mean, Andrew, Andrew, was a, Andrew Lauder was kind of a big influence because he was, he was the first person that worked for a record company that I, I guess I'd met. He was the first person that sent me a record to review when I was... You, know, you, you never forget the first time, no. do you, Mick? And I did... And free I, record. A free record. <laughs> no, but I, but I wow. genuinely... Mine I genu was Wishbone Ash. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Nine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mine was can, uh, but I generally asked, asked where I could send it back. You know. <laughs> That's great. What you thought you were just being loaned it? Yeah. Oh, oh you me. were so, oh, so, naive. so well brought. <laughs> so That's, that soon went away, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, certainly did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, we, I wanted to talk. We wanted to talk about Derek Taylor, the great yeah. Derek Taylor, who you kind of. Uh, you write about a little bit about in the book because when you first worked for Warner Brothers as a kind of you you were the guy who was writing the biogs. Yeah, that's you? that's how I got into it. I mean, the guy that was that was kept before me had been nicking you know nicking discs off the walls and selling stuff. So they sacked him and they needed to replace him very quickly. So they just I just went there for like a month to to yeah to to write the biogs, write the press releases, stuff like that. But. Um, and I ended up being there for two or three months. And in that time, um, Sire Records, which had been licensed through Phonogram, came to, to WEA. It wasn't Warner Brothers, it was WEA. Right. And, I mean, nobody... To be honest, nobody at, at WEA actually had a clue what Sire Records was. 
Um, they didn't know about any of the groups. And I think just because I was so enthusiastic, they kind of, more about us, who was the head of press, my head of press, just kind of said, why don't you stay on and handle the press? Right, right. Um, so you started off as being the guy doing the job that nobody else really wanted to do. Yeah. Was right in the, you were the person who wrote the press releases that said, you know, hard-gigging four-piece yeah. from Milton Keynes, so-and-so. I was, you know. ne- I was never that good, David. It was, it was <laughs> never that good. So you, you presumably had to sit down with loads of no-hoper bands and interview them and, they, and then try and make their background sound yeah. fascinating yeah. so that people like me and Mark would look at it and think, that's worth 200 That's words. complete bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Derry Taylor. No, Derry, okay, Derry, Derry yeah. Taylor was kind of, he was the boss at Water Brothers. He was, he was actually the boss towards the, end. the year before I started working there. But, but, I mean, my closest friend, one of my closest friends, was a guy called Dave Walters, who was one of the press officers at Warner's. And so I used to hang out there quite a bit. And I met Derek there. Um, and Derek was, I mean, first of all, nobody really, you know, I don't think he really knew any other publicists in music. He was the only famous publicist. Yeah. Well, he, he I mean, invented pop PR, didn't he? He did the Beatles and they did the Birds and they did the Beatles. He, he kind Boys, of but... did, but if you think about it, I mean, people knew about, I mean, Hollywood, you know, actors, Big stars had publicists, but musicians didn't. Like you say, until the, you know, the fact that he did the Beatles, the Birds, the Beach Boys. Um, but yeah, he was the only one you knew. I mean, you didn't know Leslie Perrin, even though he did the Stones. No, no, no. Um, no. But, but Derek th- Taylor was always on the, uh, always being interviewed on telly, sitting on a very distinctive cane chair. Wasn't That's right, it? he yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, smoking all the way through it, and dispensing very elegant words of wisdom, wasn't he? Incredibly. Which oh, bands really? then had to live up yeah. to. Yeah. yeah. When well, you started at PR, did somebody, did somebody explain to you what, how to do it, really? How did you learn what PR was? Well, I, mean, I guess I'd been a journalist, so I knew... I, not, not so much that I knew what to do. I think I knew what not to do, because I, I honestly thought I'd be absolutely rubbish at the job, because I was everything a publicist shouldn't be. I mean, I was quiet mumbled, you know, I hated cold calling people oh, you know, not at all pushy <laughs> I, have to, I have to say at this juncture that I can remember Mick ringing me up several times actually to, 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 to tell me about a new Talking Heads record and a Ramones record and both times you said, I said, what's it like? and you expected PRs to say, it's their Sergeant Pepper it's the greatest thing I've ever heard you'll love it and you know, you start spreading the love or you'll look ridiculous and Mick used to say, do you know, I don't think it's very good actually <laughs> and you go, what? You know, these guys, let me be the judge of that. <laughs> and you put it on, exactly. you think, well, actually, I think this is pretty fantastic. I'll prove it wrong. She's probably a brilliant kind of double bluff by Mick, you know. No, it <laughs> was, but I didn't, I didn't realise I was doing it. Oh, you know. uh, well, no, you were just probably just being honest, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we always took Mick's calls, didn't we? Oh, we did, absolutely. You knew that Mick wouldn't waste your time for no, ten no. minutes, no, no. you know, telling well, you things you didn't need to know. Yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the ways I look, well, I mean, I, I kind of... That's the way I would have approached it anyway. But I used to sit opposite this guy when I was at Warner's called Dave Jarrett. He was known as Monster. And he, he just had a list. He had a list of about 30 names, 30 people. And he worked on a really diverse bunch of stuff. He, 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 used, he did ACDC, he did Dollar, he did Sheila B. Devotion. Um, but he, he rang the same people every time. And you'd, you'd be, why are you ringing Black Echoes about the angelic upstarts? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it was, 
you know, it was just common sense. But, but, but funnily enough, he was so good at the gab that people would take his calls and yeah. quite like talking to him. They didn't write about any of his stuff. But, so, um, I, you know, I just sit there agonising about, oh, God, I've got to ring somebody about talking you, heads. But you used to... I, I, I bet you did one thing that Monster didn't do, which was you read the music press. I did. So you kind of knew what they you were knew likely you might to... Like it. Yeah. The kind of, uh, you know... Things. Because that's an important part of the exchange, isn't it? You have to know what it is that you're giving to them yeah, and you, and you that might know, help them. Yeah, and you have to know the writers. You have to know the writers as, as probably better than you know the, the musicians you're working with. Just Because it's not just about thinking, oh, he's going to like that record. But once you start set, starting to set up interviews, you've got to put people together. And you've got to try and put people together who are... Are going to get on and not going yeah, to end yeah. up. But when you did press for, for example, the Ramones, and uh, in fact, we're looking now at a picture of the Ramones with Iggy Pop and with Seymour Stein, who'd started the Sire label yeah. and signed all sorts of people, Madonna being one of them, which you probably worked with actually. But when you started doing the Ramones, did you did somebody say to you, their manager or whoever, this is the impression we now want to give, or we want to change the perception of them, or to be given an instruction, or were you simply there to try? Were you given and... a brief? Yeah. No, I, I never. I don't think I ever was, but but the, but I think when I by the time I took on the Ramones, you know, I, the, my, the first album I did with them was Road to Ruin, and that was their fourth album in two and a half years, but and, and I but I just knew that basically that was the one. That they were they were going to be in trouble with because because people because by then even even though now people applaud the Ramones for the fact that they remained the same for 25 years after two and a half years the tide was beginning to turn you know you got a snotty feature written by Tony Parsons and um, so I kind of knew that I had to do a kind of holding operation because because people have run out of things to say about the Ramones. And, and also, they made an album that was over 30 minutes long. Well, you, yeah, and you, you could argue that Ramones made one really fantastic record, their first record, and really couldn't really follow it. I mean, you know, they, no. you know there, was, there was nothing more they could say for the rest of their career. They were but just as retrain. the PR, you couldn't say that. You couldn't say no, that. Even, even I didn't Even say you that. couldn't <laughs> say that. Yeah. I have memories of being in a Chinese restaurant in Cambridge with the Ramones. Were you there? Quite possibly. Was it, was it an Indian restaurant? Oh, it could have been. Because they loved Indian food. I mean, that's before... They, they ate before gigs, which was quite unusual. Yes, it did. Very unusual. And, and they, they ordered, always ordered the hottest thing on the menu. And they'd sit there in the uniform, in the leathers, just sweating profusely. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I only ever saw Joey take his leather off once. And he had a bit of a paunch. Yeah. So... so um, so Johnny and Joey fell out very, very badly. Had they fallen out by that stage? I think... I can't remember why. I think Johnny stole Joey's girlfriend or something happened like that. And I they... think that came a bit later. But, I mean, I think they were always kind of opposites. And, I mean, all, all I knew was that the, the guy who runs Sire over here kind of told me that... I mean, I, I wasn't aware that there was this kind of rift between them, but, but this guy told me that... They were beginning to grow apart, if you like. Yeah. But the, the, you know, but this is the thing. I mean, I, my the first four bands I worked on were, were at Sire, which was the Rosillos, the Ramones, Talking Heads, and the Undertones. And after, and the, the first one I was really given to work on, sort of from scratch, was the Rosillos. And I, I was there. They had a hit with Top of the Pops in July. Their fantastic. Album, their album Rizzo. came out. Yeah. Fantastic reviews. Three months later, they split up. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, why? I thought, why on earth are they splitting up? Why on earth 
you know, they, they hated Sire, they hated Seymour. Um, and I just thought this was, just really couldn't get my head around it because I couldn't think why, you know. But, um, and then you kind of real, and, but then I could see why because you had two singers at the front, Faye and Eugene, and you had the three musicians at the back. And, and they both, they kind of hated each other because they, they wanted the band to go in different directions. And Faye and Eugene were getting all the press and the guys in the back weren't getting any. And so you kind of learn very quickly that bands, however, however much they start out as friends, it doesn't take long before... Isn't that always the pattern? This is always the truth, isn't yeah. it? There is an, always a burning resentment at yeah. the centre of every band, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, so with those four... It's the person who writes the songs that never get on the album, and they're absolutely yeah, which, which is furious kind of, about it. But it's like, with the four bands I just mentioned, within a year or so, you know, Johnny and Joey, there's a rift between Johnny and Joey, David Byrne and Tina Weymouth, Fergal Sharkey and John O'Neill. We're talking about Talking Heads for the moment, because Talking Heads, uh, just an interesting dynamic. In your book, you say that when they signed to Sire Records, that Tina Weymouth was made to re-audition yeah. to, to rejoin the group. I mean, yeah. I simply couldn't believe that. So yeah. why, why was that? Who's, I, I, I don't know why. It was David. It was David Byrne. So the, the, David Byrne yeah. made her yeah. reapply to join yeah. the group. Yeah. Why? <laughs> no idea, because she was brilliant. No. Yeah. I mean, no, I think, I think you know, if you saw... I, I don't think she could be rubbish to begin with, because when you saw Talking Heads live, I mean, and they were just... They were one of those great groups where every member of the group was just crucial to, Absolutely. to that group. And it wasn't just about David Byrne. You know, and she was just this fantastic bass player with this great rhythm... You know. But Byrne comes across as being very removed and rather controlling in your... Uh, and also has a terrific relationship with, Dave, with uh, Brian Eno, that makes yeah, him remain in light, I think, which rather cuts when, everybody yeah, else out. It's yeah. kind, that's kind of when the riff got worse because they were writing together and he, and he was hanging out more with, with Brian Eno. And Tina, I mean, Tina would be saying, oh, they're, they're dressing the same now, they're looking the same, they've got the same haircut and stuff. And um, they, they, they were a great band to work with because... Um, I mean, one, I think, when I met Talking Heads, they were the, having, you know, I'd met the Rosillos, I'd met the Undertones, I'd met the Ramones, and it was, you, when you meet a band, you, you, some, more often than not, you're meeting people that are just so socially and culturally different to you, um, that when, when I met Talking Heads, I mean, they were all my age, so yeah, probably yeah. Yeah. similar kind of educational background. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they were just so easy to get on with and, and utterly hedonistic as well, which was great, you know. Were they? Whereas the Ramones were really quite dull, you know. The Ramones are... Are you saying what ma a... major drinkers and dopers, then? They like, they like to drink. Yeah. yeah. They, they like There's that thing that my memory of that, that afternoon in Cambridge with the Ramones was how startlingly dull they were. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, just, they, they just, just moaned. They moaned all the time. They bickered. Uh, they, they would go straight back to the hotel after the gig and go to bed. Yeah. And then get up in the morning and moan about the fact that there was no television in England. You know? <laughs> and they couldn't get anything to eat. And, and it, was, it was... I mean, Johnny was the worst. John, Johnny, you know, w would come down to breakfast and, and he would always greet you with the words, what's up? And it, and it, but it, it meant something was up. And he was always kind of battering you for information. How many tickets did we sell yesterday? How many records did we sell? And um, he was quite tiresome. You know. So is that part of your job as the PR is to kind of, you feed them good news and... 
I think you did with Johnny. Right. <laughs> so, right. No, I think I think by and large you. I think again, it just comes back to being honest. You, you have to get people to trust you, and I think the only way you can get people to trust you is to be honest with them. I mean, going back to you kind of, I know you're joking about me saying, you know, the second album is is rubbish compared to the first. But we're not joking. Yeah, you well, did. Well, no, but yeah. I didn't know. I did say that. I know I did say that. But at the same time, you know, journalists. I don't. I mean, journalists aren't stupid. You know, yeah. Most of them aren't. You know, you can't. I mean, this is what I see today when I see press releases. It's all hyperbole. Everyone's a genius. Yeah, Everybody's yeah. legendary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's acclaimed. And you kind of think, I'm sorry, but you're not fooling anybody. When you work with the, with the undertones, you, you describe in the book as being a, a, a group unlike any other group I've ever met. I thought it was really interesting. Why was I mean, apart from that, four of them were married, which I never knew. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they were incredibly innocent. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a, and, and, and it's funny, and you said this earlier about the, the strength of the music press. It's kind of like they, they were almost, they had this image, but the, it was almost not invented by the press, but the press, the press loved their innocence and loved the fact that they made these perfect pop records. And, and I don't think there was ever a bad word written about them. But, but it sort of hindered them in the end because they, yeah. couldn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't get away from that. They wanted to move on and progress. But, um, and people didn't want them to People do. didn't want them to. It was, there was the classic sort of not wanting them to grow up. Kind of yeah, thing. They, 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 I can remember they used to have trousers that were a little bit too short, yeah. as if they'd, um, you know, in, in, inherited them from a, a brother or, you know, yeah. or, or about, you know, there was just something, yes, exactly, there was just something kind of permanently adolescent about them. Because yeah. they had their hits on Sire, and then they, they moved to EMI for a presumably better deal and so forth and made a more expensive record which nobody wanted no I mean to me I mean it was a huge mistake when they left Sire because they, I mean they went because I mean I think it was because their manager did, didn't have a particularly good relationship with Seymour and he sort of took them away from Sire I mean he, I mean, he knew that the option was coming up and he I used to, we shared offices and he was, he was sitting there waiting waiting for the day when the option was, was up, <laughs> just just hoping that Seymour wouldn't notice. Yeah. And he didn't. So the next day he, he just filed up to, to, to get out of contract. Right, right. But it was it was a huge mistake and um, EMI just didn't have what I had to some extent. And EMI didn't understand the band. And once the third album, which was Positive Touch, didn't do as well as the previous ones. Suddenly, EMI started to interfere and start saying, "You've got to do this. You've got to, you know, you've got to start wearing suits. You've got to start getting proper haircuts and stuff like that." And it was, you know, it just, just wasn't what they were about. Mm. But it's interesting. What, going back to what you're saying, that the music press kind of shaped their image, yeah. didn't it? Because they liked, they had room in their cast of characters for this bunch of kind of of lads from Derry, didn't they? Yeah. You know, they wanted them to be in a certain box. So it wasn't... People often think the images are formed by, you know, devious managers. It, it, they're very often not. No. You know, they're, they're either formed by the band or... And I think journalists and, and photographers, more than anything, were responsible for shaping the way bands like this were perceived. Yeah. But, but I think the other thing with the other shows is they dressed... That's how they dressed. And... 
in a way, they, they, would use, they would say, well, we can't start dressing like pop stars because when we go back home, people are just going to take the piss out of us. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and, and there was something also about the fact that they were from Derry, you know, I think. And I think there was something about the fact that they were from Derry and they did just have this kind of innocence and, and they made you know, these, these fantastic pop songs, you know. And the music press was incredibly important in creating that kind of mythology of those yeah. groups, wasn't it? I mean, you know, and, and your understanding of them and painting a picture of them, which is not really the case now, so we'll get on to this later, but, you know, it, it, it really helped make groups feel larger than life, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's up to a certain level, that's all there was. I mean, a group like the Undertones got, I mean, got the record, got the deal because they, they released the Teenage Kicks on an independent label, and I think it had been Singers of the Week. I mean, there was this, there was a progression, which was almost the same for every group at that stage, where, you know, you, you got... You made a single, you sent it to the, you sent it to the music press. You, chances are, if it's any good, you probably get a couple of singles of the week. Peel might pick up on it. I mean, if they didn't have a publicist, the journalists would contact the band, and there'd be a little, you know, half page in Sounds, half page in Enemy. You get your first live review. You get a library with a picture. It, it was just you could yeah. just watch it. You could I just really watch it. Yeah, 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 monster hasn't no. got one of those. No. Yeah. You know. And then ultimately, you get your first front cover, and, and you wouldn't wouldn't just get a, a play on John Peel. You get a John it Peel session. It mattered so much. But you could see this. You could watch it. You could measure a group's yeah. progress that way. And for a lot of groups, and the undertones are really typical of this. Once they got all those things, that was it. They, they, they'd achieved all their goals. Really, they think they weren't bothered after that. Whatever else happened, because they they been reviewed in the enemy. Yeah. been on John Peel. Uh, well, we're going to ask you about. I think it's the Bunnymen. Yeah, the the Bunnymen. It strikes me that that you talk about how how they don't. You know, Matt McCulloch. You know, didn't like the press and was rather um, kind of unforthcoming and. Um, Morose and deliberately dull or, or difficult with the press. Yeah, it didn't... often strikes me that people who are like that are people who who simply are incapable of coming up with witty and amusing and entertaining responses, and that's their that's their way of kind of dealing with it. It was their way you of know? dealing with it. I mean, yeah. funny enough, I mean, Mac, Mac was an avid reader of the music press. I, I think they were so. The thing about the Bunny Men was they they were really difficult to get to know because they just didn't trust anybody. They didn't trust the record company. They didn't trust journalists. Um, and I think you, you, what you just said is exactly what it was because they didn't know how to deal with people in those situations they became known for being particularly morose and difficult and, um, but, it, it, but it kind of worked but it, but it only worked so you didn't discourage that you didn't, you didn't take him aside and say well, they for treated, Christ's they sake treated me the, they treated me the same way oh, right, okay, so, yeah. But I think it only worked because at the same time, quite early on, they made Crocodiles, the first album, and it was such a brilliant album. And it meant that people stuck with them. I mean, after three or four months, they were, they were still very, very difficult. And Bill Drummond, who managed them, was equally difficult. I mean, Bill was very hard to get to know. Uh, and so and that, that was at the point when I was thinking of leaving Warners and setting up as an independent. And... I, just, I didn't actually know if I wanted to carry on working with them because it, was, it just felt like I'm not getting anywhere with these people. I cannot, I cannot break through and make, make that kind of contact where they trust me. But the record was so good. And they, they had something about them which, oddly enough, they, did, they had this kind of vision 
But it wasn't so much a vision about what they wanted as what they didn't want. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was very negatively driven. It was profoundly mm. northern, wasn't Very it? northern, very northern. That's, you know, perfectly balanced chips on both yeah. shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And, and obviously I was, I was perfectly southern. And, and Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, you know, they can, you know, beat you up, can't yeah. they? You know. Is it fair to say that they were underachievers in some way? Because there was a point where they seemed to be on the same level as you two. Yeah. And in fact, you two, if you listen to Killing Moon, um, the it sounds like you two completely stole the sound from. Oh, the, we had we had yeah, Midyear on a podcast yeah. not long ago, and he played it to us. Do you remember just before we we recorded? And uh, it sounded like you two literally modelled themselves on that sound, but then you two tore away. Yeah. And, you know, I don't I see. I don't actually think they were underachievers, but but I think they they achieved the level that they wanted to achieve, and and and, they, and, and also they just didn't want to they didn't want to put the work in really. It's the same with the undertones, you know, how they'd go on tour and they'd have to have a break in the week so that they could all go back to Derry because they didn't right. want to be away from home for more than a week. Yeah. And the bunny men hated touring and... So there's a limit to how far you're going to get. Yeah. If you... yeah. yeah. Whereas you two did everything. Yeah. yeah. And, and like I said, the bunny men were stubborn. They knew what they... It was like they knew what they wanted so they wouldn't work with certain producers. And, um, and in a way, I think what made them was the fact that they had a manager... They had Bill Drummond as a manager, and they had somebody there who was always coming up with ideas and, and just mystery tours or just, just in really great ideas. Something different. Yeah. Something it's different. It strikes you that the money being made at that time, the idea they could, they're, they're flown to, was it Iceland for the cover of Porcupine? Yeah. To be photographed in a, in a kind of, a, you know, a frozen kind of creek. Um, you know, just the amount of money that people would do, it seems like extraordinary. Actually, but that, that, that didn't cost very much, because I, 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 I wasn't going to miss out on that, so I, yes. paid, I paid for myself. You paid for yourself. Oh, yeah. yeah. But it was only about 200 quid. So you were sort of a fan, weren't you, yeah. as much as anything? So you paid for yourself to be there in order for them to be photographed in the frozen waste. Yeah. You thought, that sounds like a laugh. Yeah, definitely. Yes. And, and because, I, because I was so stupid, I didn't take any warm clothes. I never got out of the car, you know. It was too fucking cold. <laughs> but, you know, but McCulloch was wearing these kind of ridiculous kind of suede slippers with no soles. And, the, <laughs> and then just the kind of flimsy... He had the big coat on, but he just had this kind of flimsy T-shirt underneath. And, you know, he was walking along this... this you know, this glacier, just inching his way along and, and it's just testifying stuff. That's so rock star, isn't it? It is very rock star. A pair of moccasins. It's inappropriately dressed. But by then he'd learned, he'd learned what to say and I think he said, so it's, it's great to be part of the landscape, you know. Right, yeah. yeah. No more modest, modest you ever, grunting. Yeah. I often think when I look back on those, those, the era, and I think there are certain performers and Morrissey is one who comes to mind, whose real genius was the interview. Yeah. It was it's not musical at all. It was presenting himself, yeah. you know. Did you ever have anybody quite like that? Well, yeah, I did. I mean, I mean having started off being very monosyllabic and just incommunicative, I mean, Mac became like that. I mean, Mac transformed into this Mac, Mac the Mouth character that everyone, everybody wanted to interview because, you know, he'd always be kind of making kind of wisecracks about Bono or Jim Kerr or whatever. Um, and Julian had that. I mean, Julian was a natural. Julian was... 
Julie, you're talking about Julian Cope of the, yeah. of the, of the teardrops. The, the, again, extraordinary bit in the book where the teardrop explosives are not signed. And there's great competition between them and, um, and Echo and the Bunnymen. But they're not signed because the record companies don't think that Julian is either charismatic enough, good-looking enough, or a good enough singer. Yeah, well, none of those. So none none of those. those three, none but of those he probably wasn't anything. a good enough singer, but he somehow mm. transformed himself into yeah. somebody in a Scott Walkerish way who was actually very charismatic yeah. and good-looking. So that was my first cover of Smash Hits as the editor. I put oh, Julian, that, oh, wow. Julian Cope on the cover. How I recovered, I do not possibly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you once did me a huge favour, and I don't know if you remember this, because you once put the teardrop explodes on one side of Smash Hits and Echo and the Bunnymen on the other. <laughs> because I, I, I think I probably said, well, you know, look, if you put the Bunnymen on the cover of it, not the teardrops, it's going to be hell. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to make my life miserable. It's civil yeah, war in and Liverpool. You, you, yeah. you kind of went along with that, so it was. <laughs> so yeah, so I think I think you reversed it and then you held it upside down. But we so we had joint covers, covers of smash hits. So it enables you to go to the too. client and say you both got the cover. I've yeah. got you both the yeah. cover. It's yeah. always important. What was the, what was the dynamic of the, of the teardrop exposure? Because Julian is again, it's sort of posher than the others, wasn't he? He was he's sort of a. A kind of Rick Mail of the Young Ones character. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he wasn't. Also, he wasn't. He was. He was. He wasn't a scouser. You know, it's like yeah. when Peter Freitas joined the Bunnymen. I don't know how he survived because because he was he was a, a lad from Oxford that had been waiting to to you know to to go to Oxford. Um, ends up joining the Bunnymen with with you know three guys who didn't speak to him for about six months and and, and, and thought he was Welsh. <laughs> so they called him Taff, you know. It, it, yeah. it was, you know, but but no, I mean Julian. I mean Julian was just very smart. I mean Julian. I think in, in the whole book, I don't just I don't think I describe anybody as legendary or genius or any of those things. But Julian's the only person I think I ever worked with that had a had a kind of touch of genius about him. And in what way? I think. His intellect, as much as anything else, and just just his imagination. His imagination would yeah. just run wild. It, but also, his probably his greatest skill was his ability to communicate with people. I mean, you you interviewed him apart, yeah, from, yeah, apart from when he was off his place at Club Zoo, you know. And he was so eloquent and so funny, and he could make you, he, you know, he he could get people interested in just about anything. I mean, he invented, you know, he reinvented Scott Walker, for God's sake. You know. But as his PR, I can remember he, he appeared on the cover of, a, of an album. Was it Fried? I think where Fried. he's kind of naked and dressed in a, in a turtle shell. And, and people still, it was such a memorable picture that I still, that's my mental image of him now, you know. Did you know he was going to do that? And did you, did you, uh, how did you feel about that? Did you think it was going to change people's I mean, I didn't, I didn't know until I saw it. Um, I, I, I didn't think it was going to change people's perception. I think it just enhance people's perception of what he was like because it made him appear to be this complete drooling idiot you know yeah um and it took him <laughs> yeah it, it it took him about 15 years almost to get people to change that perception exactly um, but not through anything i did but because essentially because he started writing books you know he in the middle of the 90s he wrote head on which yeah. is a kind of biography of autobiographical account of liverpool he wrote the Krautrock sample, and then he did that extraordinary modern antiquarian book. Yeah, and and I think, I think at that point people could could no longer think this guy is a complete acid casualty because, you know, because the sheer you know. There was a moment when he was on book. stage at the Hammersmith Palais, I think, and he opened uh, opened a, a jar of honey, 
and poured it over himself. Yeah. You know, as a sort of um, some kind of form of self-expression, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, as his PR again. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you would have thought this is fantastic. It's just great publicity, and you know. I, actually, I didn't then because I think he was just losing it. To be honest, I mean, yeah. that, that was when he also ripped his stomach open with a mic stand. The same game. Oh right, okay. Um, no, he was he was not so good. It was not so good because he'd made. The World Shut Your Mouth album, not the single, the World Shut Your Mouth album. And it got absolutely hammered in the press, just pilloried. Um, and, you know, he'd gone from being... You know, at one point with Julian, I mean, you, you would have believed the point when Reward came out and Tito Explodes, 1980. You would have believed that he was as big as Sting or, or that the Teardots were as big as... Adam and the Ants, but they only have one hit record. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah that's true. That's you know, true. Julian was everywhere because he, he just he, he had the looks, he had the, yeah. the you know the eloquence, um, and then the tear dot split up, and then a year and a half later he comes back with the first solo album, and it really was just almost cruelly savaged by by the press, um, and it's one of those rare occasions for me when I just couldn't I couldn't understand it because I thought the record was great, I couldn't understand why everyone seemed to hate it. Um, and Julian I tried to sort of take it on the chin but I mean I knew it was just eating eating up away at him and he was playing this tour where there were about three or four hundred people turning up whereas two years before it would have been 1500 or something and when he got to Hammersmith which is where, you, where he poured the honey over himself he just flipped um, do they, in your experience do they read reviews and do they get to them? Some do, some do. I mean, like I say, McCulloch wasn't avidly read everything. But, um, um, and would he be very shaken by a, bad, a very negative review? I mean, what, did people just, you know, withdraw and no, I, I gibber? Think, and I don't think so, but I, but I think the example I just gave with Julian was just because it was, it was so... I think everyone hated that record, and and uh, and I think he, he he genuinely believed it was it was a great record. And we all did. We right. all did. There um, must be characteristics uh, that really separate the groups who, who kind of don't quite make it, the ones who really do. And there are three or four groups in the in in your in your book that you talk about who you just feel they never never fulfilled their potential. You know, Doll by Doll is a really yeah. good example. I, mean, I don't know if anybody listening remembers Doll by Doll, but they made fantastic yeah. records. But, but Quite not, kind of operatic yeah. rock music. Yeah. It was extraordinary. But why didn't they... Why didn't they I think that part success? of the reason they didn't make it, I think, was because Jackie, the, the, the kind of lead guy, he was, he was very... He confronted people too much. As he confronted journalists. I mean, journalists right. either loved Doll by Doll or they hated them. They were... They, I, Think of any group I've ever worked with, it was so divided. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Group. I mean, John Peel loathed Doll by Doll. Oh, really? They, they must be the only group I ever worked with that never got a John Peel session because <laughs> he just hated them. And I think they were a bit older. They kind of came yeah, in on the were. kind of punk yeah. ticket. Um, and he was yeah. also—he was also too big to be confrontational, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. He was too physically big. Yeah. You know, people would be frightened of him, yeah. wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah. And but Lawrence so. from Felt, uh, is, uh, who we're looking at a picture of him here, top right, and uh, who you said had a bit of the forest gump about him. Yes. <laughs> so again, Felt, I can remember, Felt, this would have been, what, the early 90s, I think, when I might have been at Select Magazine. Yeah, or I, mean, I mean, I started working... It seemed to be a big deal, you know. And it, well, it, they, they come up, they've been... 
they'd come through Cherry Red and made these great guitar, very kind of waves of guitar type records. And he signed to Creation, and I think everyone thought because he signed to Creation and Mary Chain had got big, that that would be the making of him, if you like. Yeah. But then, you know, he released an album of two-minute cheesy instrumentals, which which people go, what the fuck's this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Actually, we should talk about Creation, because uh, you work with... Yeah, with Alan McGee and uh, doing press for which bands were there? I mean, it started, I guess, with um, Mary Chain. I, mean, I, was, I was kind of brought in by Warner Brothers. They signed to Blanco, which is a WA label. And I think Warner's did the press for a couple of singles. And I, I think they, the Warner's just thought they were kind of too hot to handle. So, um, I mean, I kind of had this reputation for being good at working with difficult... I'm going to say, absolutely. No, they, no. You had a target on your back, didn't you, mate? They, 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 Poor Mick Houghton with those no. guys. Because the Jesus Mary chain are, 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 are impossible to deal with. And again, detested journalists. Yeah. And yet, and yet groups like that without journalism didn't make much sense. No. You I don't, needed I don't, to read I don't, about I don't, them. I actually don't think they did detest journalists. They were the most uncomfortable... They hated doing interviews. They were so uncomfortable doing interviews. But if you interviewed the Mary Chain, they were either incredibly boring because they wouldn't say anything, and then they'd look at each other and they'd get angry with each other because the other one hadn't spoken for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They either did that or they kind of got belligerent, you know, because they... And, and um, I don't think they hated journalists, but but I think the other problem with them with journalists, I think journalists were actually a bit too respectful to the Mary Chain, I think. Right. Um, so I, I, in a way, they were actually really quite easy to work with because they, you know, they were always punctual, they turned up. Always punctual, you never hear that very often about yeah. rock stars. <laughs> always very punctual. Yeah. Yeah. So you but, watch um, by him. Yeah. We've got to ask you about Andrew Oldham um, because I remember a bizarre afternoon in a hotel in Chelsea yeah. With Andrew Oldham, who at the time was relaunched, supposedly relaunching immediate records. Yeah. It was in the 90s, is it? 92, 93. 90, yeah. 93. And he was, he, was, he, was, um, he, he was holding court in this hotel in Chelsea. Am I right? Yeah, it was a uh, Draycott Hotel somewhere around by Chelsea. Right, okay. Yeah, it was him and his old partner, Tony Calder. Tony Calder. And they were, very, they were, they were kind of both... Tony was the straight man, and Andrew was as Andrew, really. He was, uh, he was absolutely outrageous yeah. at the time. Yeah. And kept leaving and then coming back. <laughs> I was, Slightly I, more I outrageous. I think why, David. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quite. It was, the, it was the most extraordinary performance yeah. I've ever seen. I mean, the thing with Andrew was, he, he, apart from the, there wasn't much of drugs, but he used to drink gallons of... Um, grappa, wasn't it? Grappa. Yeah. Which, gallons of grappa, that's which, good. Which... Um, had this really sweet, pungent smell. So you, you really could, if he was coming in the room, you could smell him before he arrived yeah. because this aroma of grapple would sort of come wafting through. Um, and he was just out of it. So, I mean, I, I, I actually worked with him for a long time. So in a way, I worked with him, and I'm glad I worked with him when he was like that because, because that's, that's what you wanted. That's what you want. That's, that's Andrew Oldham. That's what he was like when he managed you know. the Stones. And then, and then um, they paid him off. And I think put him on some kind of retainer, didn't they, for yeah, the rest of his yeah. life. And he's lived in South America, I think, just have, having a terrific time. Well, he's straightened up now. Though. Well, yeah, that's, what, that's, what, I was, him that's what I was about to say. He, he I think, um, that was 93, I think about three or four years later, he straightened up. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of glad I got to see to know both Andrews, really. Yeah. But, but when you had a client like Andrew Oldham at the time, fizzing with drugs, <laughs> you must... You, did you think, 
Oh, I can't expose him to the press. Or do you think, yummy, bring kind on of, the press? Kind of yummy, actually, because that's what they want. That's what it, the press It is wants. what they want, yeah. isn't it? And they want him to tell the same stories he's already told because then they've got them and they can reprint them. Yes, absolutely. And, Slightly exaggerated yeah. every yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and there was a classic one with John, if you remember John Wilde, who wrote for Melody Maker. I mean, I mean, John baited him so much about whether he did actually used to dangle people out of the window. Oh, that's Don Arden. And uh, so Andrew just grabbed him and dangled him out of the window. <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's what you want. That's <laughs> a good story. You know. That's, that's a great story. You don't get that anymore, no, you do don't. you? Yeah. Now, Dave and I, uh, uh, I can remember at the time when, when the, the, the justified ancients of Moo Moo and the, and the KLF came along. We were completely mystified as to what the story was. You know, what, what, how did it happen? What were they trying to achieve? You know, it was Andrew, is An, Andrew Courty, right? Jimmy, sorry, Jimmy, Jimmy Courty, yeah. who I think was a cartoonist who'd uh, done a load of um, cartoons of, of Gandalf for Athena reproductions, yeah. that's right. And, uh, and Bill Drummond, who I think was a trawlerman, and then he was a, a carpenter. And so they got together. What was, the, what was the purpose of the KLF? What were they trying to do with their, with their music and their kind of shock tactics and their... I think by the time Strategy. they got together, I mean, Bill, Bill had managed the Bunny Man, he'd been working, he'd, he'd left, he'd managed the Teardrops. Um, and Jimmy was in a group called Brilliant, uh, who signed to, and, and Bill was working at Warner's for, for a couple of years, um, and he signed Brilliant. So that's, that's kind of how they met. Um, I don't think when they, when they made the first jam single, All, All You Need Is Love, I don't think they really. M- had any idea where it was going beyond that one record but it was just one of those records and, and this is genuinely this is one of those records where I didn't get it I, I thought it was just I just not, I didn't, not I thought it was awful I just didn't understand it it was all this kind of rapping and scratching and stuff and, and there was Bill is that how you sold it to the press? You rang up people like us and said, I don't understand this record. This. <laughs> I, I probably Maybe did. Maybe you will. I probably yeah. did, but, but, but in a way, you know, and also it was Bill Drummond, and I knew it was Bill Drummond. He was pretending to be a Clydeside docker called King Boy D, you know, and I just... Yeah, thought, that's right. And I just thought, people are not going to believe this. Cause, but they did, didn't but they? But they did. Yeah. But, but interesting, which I didn't know until Bill told me this, actually, that what kind of launched it for them, and this was still an example of how powerful the press was, James Brown made it Singer of the Week in Sounds. And James Brown, when he made it Singer of the Week in Sounds, actually believed they were what they purported to be. He didn't know it was Bill Drummond who used to manage Echo and the Bunnymen. And it's and this happens sometimes, that it, it was one of those reviews that then everyone just followed suit. I think Danny Kelly made it Singer of the Week in yeah, the, week yeah, the next yeah. week. And, and then I think the thing with them was that as the jams that's when they just they just we just did things differently there were no photographs they would have these graffitied images and then they just started doing things that that, that were that the press just wanted to write about them. well they were yeah. fantastic things I can remember yeah. being with Dave in fact at the Hammersmith Odeon at the Brit Awards when oh, they came on, sta- on stage with, with machine guns yeah and uh, the single and then, loudest then, thing I've ever heard in my life and then deposited a dead sheep uh, I remember you saying there. to me later in that evening it was the Brit Awards which you started the Hammersmith Odeon yeah. then went to wherever it was and you said to me, rather exciting, gleam in your eye, they've deposited a dead sheep yeah. in, the, in the entrance to the Grosvenor House. It's or a PR it dream, yeah. isn't it? But, you know, Why but don't more bands do that? And this is, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, but this is in the book as well. I mean, they were genuinely going to... 
Um, and they did this ridiculous performance of What Time Is Love with extreme noise terror. That's right. Oh, and, and Bill was just screaming abuse about the music industry. Which and then machine gun the audience yeah. at the end. But they were going to do that. What they were going to do was they, 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 bought, they got this dead sheep. They, Bill had gone up to the abattoir in Northampton and brought back this dead sheep because what they were originally going to do was to... Um, throw buckets of blood over the audience <laughs> after the performance. And obviously the front row at the... But, the but can I ask was all why? <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but, but, but I, I actually... I mean, I thought, why? Why are you doing this? This is... This is you can't... I, why are you doing it? You cannot do this. So, and I, so I did actually tip off the press. I, I, I told the Daily Star. And, the, you know, there was the Star and the Sun. And, and two days before, they ran the story... That they were going to do this, so the BBC, so the the, the um, Brit Awards people, Jonathan <coughs> Jonathan King, funny enough, oh, kind, kind of yeah. pulled him in and said, "You you can't do this." So <laughs> so they agreed not to do that, and instead they did. Bill came out with a machine gun and pretended to. So the, the million Bill, quid, yeah, burning, yeah, did it happen? Yeah. How? But you weren't there, were you? Oh, I, I know. I saw them. Uh, I wasn't there. It, I mean, I genuinely believe they did it. I mean. So you but, don't know. So the, no, no, let's no, run through the story. Big, they went to the Isle of Jura yeah. with a million pounds in cash, yeah. they built a bonfire, and they burnt it. And some local people found, um, you know, great big kind of uh, clumps of kind of burnt banknotes floating in the sea. So there were, yeah. obviously some did get, you know, incinerated. Yeah. But oh, no, I, how I, do I, we I know do, that I they do, burnt the I entire do, million? I, just, I kind of genuinely know that they did. Uh, I can't say that because I, was, I wasn't there. But... It was just something that had been eating away at them. For, I mean, they, they, they'd done this whole... There was a whole episode when they did the... Up, you know, they up, kind of upstaged the Turner Prize and did this alternative yeah. Turner Prize award. But the reason they'd done that initially was because they wanted to do... They wanted to have this exhibition, which was basically a million pounds, that they wanted to have a whole exhibition of sums of money where basically, in theory, you could buy them of the reserve price of half the value. So a million pounds you could buy for 500,000. Right. But, um, but nobody were putting on. They, they went to all the major art galleries and they just, we can't do this. I mean, one, because the insurance purposes, and two, just because I think it's a, they're a bit, the art, the art world was a bit snotty towards two pop stars. Just You can't just come along here and pretend you're artists. Yeah, fair enough. So, so they, it just ate away at them. And I think they just decided... We're going to burn it. We're going to burn the money, and and it went. And they from, must have regretted that. If they did, well, if they did actually do it, they must have regretted. It. They must wake up every morning in a sweat. tax position, thinking burn yeah. a million quid. Yes. Well, actually, it this, cannot this, be simple. It, it isn't simple because they 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 burnt the money. But what they didn't realise was that because they had to take the money out of the bank, therefore it was drawings. They were taxed on it. Yeah. There you so, go. Yeah, yeah. So, there you go. So they yeah. burnt the million pounds and they had to pay presumably about 400 This is grand. This yeah. is what the KLF have got in, in yeah. common with the singing nun. <laughs> and the singing nun well, made millions million out of the huge, you know, worldwide number one, and which she then gave she to charity yeah. or gave to the, the order and then had to pay tax on it. Yeah. Not funny at all. It's just... It, it, this, this is the... Your, your book covers an era which where, where people's... Success and whole life was kind of de de defined by the music yeah. press, you know, and particularly the weekly music press, and particularly the NME, and all that's 
gone away now? Has that world gone away? You know, has those, those kind of bands gone away with that kind of ambition? Has that gone? I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, the music press had still had that power in the nineties, but I, but I think even by then, I mean, it's like you know, Smash Hits was really Smash Hits was important, but it, it didn't have the same power that the enemy had. No. Um, and and I think be, all through the eighties, because kind of basically all you had was was these four music papers, four weekly music papers, and everybody bought them. That's how they all. You know, that's how you learned about anything. Um, and you and you and, and you could manipulate it. Not not manipulate it um, because. As I say, I think well, I'm trying to explain. This. I mean, I think because it was just so powerful, because it made or could make or break artists, really. Um, and then, but also the music press. I mean, it, when I worked at the NME, I think it sold something in the region of 200, 250,000 copies a week. And if you're on the cover of the NME, you'd be you'd be selling, as it were, many, many more units than you were of the records yeah. you were putting out. I mean, it was just and people's careers were just made. You've got a completely distorted view, actually, of how successful they were. Yeah. No, it's know, a lot of those huge stars yeah. of the 70s and the 80s actually never really made any money because they yeah. never really sold any records, but they were yeah. just very, very, But very what they wanted stars. to be was on the cover of the Yeah, they wanted to be on the cover of the The whole session on John Peel, cover of the enemy. And the cover of the enemy was so much more than being on the cover of the Melody Maker or being on the cover of Sounds. I mean, Sounds was the one I was... Actually, usually picked up on things first, first and, yeah. and then you know because if you're it the, would take risk. Yeah, but if in a way, if you were the PI, it was it was kind of awful, awkward situation in a way because sounds might have gone with the band first, but as soon as you were able to get them on the cover of the enemy, yeah, absolutely, you went with the enemy. You know, <laughs> and that that was a kind of juggling act you had to make between yeah. between all the sort of rival. And this is a fascinating thing that at its zenith, at the at the zenith of punk, and it was so much about snobbery, wasn't it? Yeah. Fantastically subtle gradations of snobbery. Yeah. But it was, you know, it, it did carry on. I mean, I worked with, um, I think the last band I remember that we worked with, I think, where the cover of the enemy kind of broke them, was, was spiritualised. And, and ladies and gentlemen, we were floating in space. I mean, it was a great record to begin with, but they'd always had this, this kind of image where Jason was just seen to be difficult and didn't, you know, never said anything. And he was always smashed out, smashed out of his brain. Um, but he was somebody that I met and just got on really well with, you know. And, uh, and, and you know, they had the cover of the enemy with him and with him and Kate Radley, and he was in the, the spacesuit, um, which coincided with the time that Kate Radley was married to Richard Ashcroft of the Verve. So there was this whole kind of soap opera thing going on. With the, Jason had written this album about Kate leaving him for Richard Ashcroft, and. Um, it, it broke through the enemy, and then everyone else kind of followed, followed suit. But now it's all gone, hasn't it? Yeah. You know, because you can't, you know, in the world of social media, you can't kind of misbehave in the same way, no. can you? You know, they... I don't, I don't, I just don't think there's anything that's got that single, you know, individual power, no. power that the enemy used to have, yeah, and yeah. the music press had in general. This, this. Um, I well, that's, that's why I stopped doing it to some extent. Because yeah. and when's the book out? It's not out for a bit, is it? Is July, it? July the fourth. Well, it's a, it's a fantastic account of that period, that febrile period when, uh, 
particularly awkward young men with mad haircuts could kind of, you know, parley that into considerable fame, uh, thanks to people like Mick Houghton. <laughs> Thank you very much. This podcast was brought Thank to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.